One time I was drunk on a morning show in Montana The host asked me if I had a nickname Said my friends call me the Dirtbag King She said on the air I started giggling Hasn't had me back but now I've got this podcast Welcome to my podcast Hey Dirtbags, thanks so much for tuning in to A Dirtbags Guide to Life on the Road. This is your host, Charles Ellsworth, and as always, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. This week, we've got a great episode with my friend David H. Holmes. Really interesting guy. I met him working at a bar here in Brooklyn a number of years ago, and we hit it off immediately. Really enjoyed working with him, and it was just a brief time, but I always enjoyed the shifts that we had together. We'd always end up drinking at the end of the shift while cleaning up and talking about Towns Van Zant or... Graham Parsons and just, I don't know, really just enjoying shooting the shit. And so I always really enjoyed him. And then he one day wasn't working at the bar anymore. And I was asking him, I was like, hey, what, why aren't you here anymore? And he's like, oh, I got this great acting gig. I'll tell you more about it later on. And it turned out he had landed a role in... Uh, high fidelity for Hulu opposite Zoe Kravitz and yeah very just really cool it was just crazy to see someone I know just like you know he'd been an actor for years it was just really cool to just know someone right when something that exciting was kind of going on for him so um, we haven't spoken in years or, or haven't really been able to sit down and talk in years and so it was great to just have this conversation over the podcast and I'm glad we were able to record it and you get to listen to it it's a really, I feel like, inspiring conversation. I, I needed to hear a lot of the things he had to say. You know, the, the as I like to say, the pendulum's been swinging back and forth as far as my relationship with my music and, and the effort that goes into it and, and you know, what, what you think you're getting out of it. And, you know, sometimes it feels great and other days it doesn't feel as good. And speaking with David on the day that we did was really good for me and he had a lot of things that I really, really enjoyed hearing. And it was just, a, just great catching up. I think you all will enjoy this episode and I'm really excited for you all to hear it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Uh, As usual, my Patreon is the main sponsor of the podcast. And pretty much that's the case because if you want to support the podcast, the best way to do it is through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Charles Ellsworth and check it out. You can see it's kind of like a subscription where you get a sign up for whatever level you want in exchange for different things that you get from me. And it's the best way to directly support the show, best way to directly support me as an artist. And it's a really cool platform in which I get to show you guys kind of what I'm up to. And I think that if you like the show, if you like my music, go to Patreon and, you know, sign up to throw us three, five bucks a month, whatever you won't miss. And it makes a big difference for us. One of the things that you can get in return for signing up for Patreon at the $10 level or higher, you get a shout out for me on this podcast, this podcast called The Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road that you're listening to right now. And this week's shout out goes out to my friends, Tyler and Molly. Tyler and Molly, I've known for years. Tyler and I met in college became immediate friends even though at the time he had dreadlocks and he's white and I had a problem with that but we worked through it and uh he's just like one of the best people I know and immediately even even with the dreadlocks I knew I was like this dude is the fucking best and I've loved him from like the get-go and then he met Molly and they started dating and then eventually got married and I got to be at that wedding and I've just gotten to know Molly over throughout the years and it's they're just such kind and generous people that want to support people's art and their dreams and it means so much to me that they 
are patrons of mine and supporters of mine and friends of mine. So, so Tyler and Molly, thank you so much for everything throughout the years. I can't tell you how much it means to me. And if you want to be like Tyler and Molly, which you should want to be like because they're the shit, you should go to patreon.com forward slash Charles Ellsworth and sign up to be a patron today. Our other sponsor this week is Burro Baracho Records, is a record label that I'm a partner of. I don't know if you're aware, but I've been a partner with my friend Mark, MC Busstop, uh, for a while now, and uh, we're just focusing on trying to put out music that we enjoy and that we think needs to reach a wider audience or could use just an extra hand. And we've been able to put out music from artists like Columbia Jones and Quiet Morning and the Calamity, as well as myself and my moniker, A.B. Chetiskai, which is like instrumental guitar music. If you're not familiar with it, you should check it out. But most recently, we were able to put out a record from my friends Bob Fleming and the Cambria Iron Company. record remnants is just a fucking killer record i really love it from the minute i listened to it i was like damn this record's so good and i was so honored that bob and don and everyone approached us being like hey we'd like to put out this record and we'd like to put it out on vinyl and we'd love for you to kind of be a part of that burrow baracho and mark and i gave the record a listen and we're just like fuck yeah we would love to help out however we can and be a part of it in whatever capacity we can so remnants is the new record from bob fleming and the cambria iron company out on burrow baracho records and please just go check it out wherever you listen to music uh apple music title spotify youtube all of it Go check it out. Follow Burrow Baracho Records on Spotify. Follow Burrow Baracho Official on Instagram to keep up with what's going on with the Burrow family. And now, without further ado, please enjoy me sitting down with my friend David H. Holmes talking about life in the biz. Where did we meet again? Bergen, I believe. It was just Bergen, right? Yeah. yeah. Met at Bergen. Um, I feel like I've known you before that, but I know it was just Bergen. Yeah, what's weird about that is it's like, I, th- I think about like how long we just ended like I was there. I was there for like a little over two years, I want to say. So like, and it's been over two years since I worked there. So like when I started there, it was like four and a half, five years ago. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah, now it's not even there. Yeah, now, no more. R.I.P. Bergen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just first off, I guess, introduce yourself a little bit. Tell tell the folks a little bit about yourself. And Sure. Uh, David Holmes, I'm an actor. Uh, been here in Brooklyn for 18 years, uh, working at that. Most of the time, I've just been a bartender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where I met you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah... Well, um, where where do you come from? Where did you where did you grow up? I was born up? in Pensacola, Florida. Grew up in Gulf Breeze, Florida, which is a little kind of peninsula right off of it, like a beach off of Pensacola. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who don't know, Pensacola is the furthest north and west you can get in Florida until you hit Alabama. Oh, okay. We're basically the bottom of Alabama, right next to Mississippi. Gotcha. You know, a couple hours out of New Orleans, it's it's like it's the bottom of the Deep South. Yeah. It's as southern as you can get until you hit the Gulf of Mexico, so... Really? Yeah. That's wild. That's And so you lived there pretty much all the way through high school? All the way through high school, um, and then left right after I got out of high school. Yeah, were you 
the whole time growing up just like rearing waiting so you could get out kind of i mean i liked it it's a beach town i had good friends like it wasn't the worst upbringing but then you know when i realized i wanted to be an actor and i had took a trip to new york the summer before my senior year mm-hmm. with and i met up with some friends who were older and had already moved here and like i stayed with them when i got a taste of like the new york life mm-hmm. and the actor life i was like i know what acting looks like in pensacola and gulf breeze there's a great community theater scene there and it's fun and i learned a great deal but i i knew that obviously new york is the uh is the place I need to go if I want to continue this and make a living out of this. Totally. So, you know, it wasn't so much like, God, I get out of here. It was just like, there's no, if I didn't want to have a career, then I would stay. Yeah, totally. I wanted to have a career. I wanted to put myself out there. So That's cool. That's actually, I mean, it seems like kind of like the rare uh, version of it where like, I know just, I mean, I came from a small town and I know a lot of people that were like, Get me the fuck out of here. Yeah, you know? And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people might feel that way about there, too. I mean, there's a progressive enclave. It's very conservative, of course. But, you know, that that's not my biggest beef with the place. I mean, you know, there's, it's the, the beaches are really beautiful. And there's some mm-hmm. great people there. I think I was just really incredibly fortunate to know what I wanted to do at that age. I think a lot of people yeah. don't know. I mean, they have interests and they have, like, things they want to do. But I was so incredibly clear on exactly what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And how so did you catch the acting button? Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, I'm just saying that's what motivated me to, to, to make those decisions. Totally. How did you catch the acting bug? Like, what did what started it? I don't know. I, I mean, I the just performance stuff. I mean, I was in, like, the little church plays, mm-hmm. you know, and then you start to kind of develop a comfortability being in front of a lot of people and, you know, and it's fun. It's a fun way to express yourself. For whatever reason, I just gravitated towards it, and I started, and I was okay at it, and I seemed to be comfortable on stage. And so, you know, that develops into doing the local community theater, to doing some dinner theater even. I was, you know, mm-hmm. it's the Artful Dodger in Oliver at some dinner theater. Oh, really? Yeah, and then there's the the high school drama stuff, and that's where you make other friends that are like-minded. So, you know, it all just kind of just fit. Yeah. It just kind of seemed to, like, be the natural fit for what i wanted to do totally that makes yeah. sense and that um that's really cool that can do you have any like really interesting stories from like the the early like the dinner theater stuff or like um i don't know it's just the thing about that dinner theater experience is like looking back on it i think it was obviously a lot different than how i perceived it at the time because i was a kid i was you know like 10 or 11 and, you know, these were, like, adults. I think, like, the owners, like, got, you know, sued and run out of town for, like, ev- like just, you know, like, I guess there was probably some shady stuff going on. But I always remember these two older actors who I guess now must have been, like, fucking my age. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even younger. Who played, like, you know, the older characters in it. And uh, I always think about those guys. Because they were just so sweet and so nice. And, like, I think they just traveled around and, like, just performed wherever they could mm-hmm. and i've kind of come to uh really appreciate that type of person as i've gotten older and i've always gravitated to those kind of jobbing actors mm-hmm. and uh i don't know i just really appreciated me like just meeting those guys it's not even anything specific about what they did it was just their presence and i remember like when i came here to the city uh i was i had just turned 18 so it felt like i was still 17 mm-hmm. and maybe like a year after one of the guys in it like 
I don't know how because there wasn't I wasn't on Facebook. That wasn't even a thing. But like, I guess he still had my number, and he just reached out to see how I was doing, and we met up in New York, and just like, just saw what he was doing and everything. It was just it was very interesting, because I I was definitely a child when I worked with him last, and to just kind of like share a beer, even though I wasn't legal to drink a beer, but share a beer over you know this like now we're New York actors. Yeah, felt really interesting to me. It was kind of like full circle. And so you, right out of high school, just moved yeah. to New York. Didn't uh, didn't go somewhere for college first, or well, I try. I thought about the college stuff, insofar as like you know, me and my mother went to you know a couple of the local, you know, lo- as in like four hour drive away or less. Like Colleges, Gainesville and whatnot. Yeah, Gainesville. Um, I think Flagler, in uh, in Georgia, and one of the one of the other ones I can't remember. And like you know, I toured the grounds or whatever did all that stuff and i i just kind of realized and we both just kind of realized because you know I'm pre- we don't have a lot of money and i realized we we're going to spend a lot of money just for me to get into debt and then come to new york four years later anyway mm-hmm. right so i was like but i discovered during that trip that i came before my senior year I discovered the school called hb studios in uh, the west village it's it's not a degree granting institution. It's only accreditation, is its reputation. Like it's you know, Pacino went there. So and so took classes. Like all these different you know bigger actors at mm-hmm. least took classes there. Uta Hagen taught there. She's a very famous acting teacher and actress. And um, I audited a few classes and I fell in love with the place. And I was like, well, this is way more affordable. It's in the heart of it, and it's not like taking me out from auditioning. Because what I noticed about all these other programs where you know they were isolating you for four years so you can work on your craft and then the intention is to get out into the world and i mean i that could be valid everyone has their journey but i always uh i always think it's it's good to be auditioning as you're learning even if you're 17 18 19 and you're fresh like just you need to hit the ground running as best you can because you're going to have years of auditioning and not getting stuff and failing so might as well start as soon as you can yeah totally because what they don't teach you or what they try to teach you and maybe they just don't do a good enough job at it, is the the auditioning aspect of it. Mm-hmm. You can sit in a, you know, a room full of other like-minded students and like tear your guts out and work on like really tough material. But if you don't have a facility to walk into a room with a casting director and nail it, and or you know work really hard and do really good in those three minutes they give you, then it, none of that matters. Like You have to have a facility to, to do that. So, you know. And I'm not saying HB even has like an audition class, but... The fact that I was auditioning, the fact that I was being put out at the same time as I was studying has just been really helpful. Well, because you're learning both aspects of the craft at the same time, mm-hmm. maybe not through a teacher or right. that's kind of like, um, you know, I went to film school and uh, it was very theory based. You know, we, we did some hands on stuff, but it was mostly like watching films and analyzing them and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And but so I got myself a job editing for a local TV show. When yeah. I was in college, because which college you go to? The University of Utah. Nothing super special. Yeah. I was mainly like wanting an excuse to snowboard as much as possible, and I want. I like you. I wanted to make movies. That was what I wanted to do since I was like twelve years old. It was kind of like my passion. I loved music all along, but um, yeah, I never planned on being a musician, and then eventually it just kind of happened. But that was like the when we'd turn in projects in the few production classes we would take, it'd be obvious that me and a few friends were like f- way further ahead than a lot of people. 
just due to experience. Right. You know, I had been making videos and stuff like that since I was a kid. Right. You know, I'd been editing stuff in high school and then, you know, and all and those hours really mean something, you know, sure. and like like that trial by fire is like that's really valuable that you were learning learning the aspect of auditioning, which is why I've never really entertained the idea of acting because that just that shit terrifies me. Yeah. You know, and I can get on stage in front of no one or a lot of people playing music and I'm like hiding behind my guitar and that's fine. But the rejection side of auditioning, I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if I could handle that. Well, just as just just on that specific note, I mean, you have to develop a relationship with rejection mm-hmm. if you're going to be in this business. I mean, I think any artistic business, obviously, totally, but specifically acting. I mean, that's the only one I can speak from. You know, you, I'm going to be rejected uh, more time, even if I have a career where I rack up. 300 credits mm-hmm. you know i will still have been rejected more than 300 times i've, you'll, you'll I've auditioned be, thousands of times you'll be rejected times. hundreds of times per time you get oh yeah so you know the the to develop a, a good relationship a healthy relationship of rejection is is like i think probably the most important thing if you're going to try and be in this business at least um but yeah how would what did that look like when you were super young, um, going to auditions and and like developing that relationship with the rejection? Well, it it looked fine because I was just happy to be in the room. I mean, if, when you start, if you have no connections, which I didn't, mm-hmm. and when you don't come from uh, one of the more top tier schools like Juilliard or NYU or something, you don't really get your foot in the door. So every connection that I made that that resulted in an audition was you know just through being in the world uh-huh. or you know through meeting someone and just them liking my whatever i'm bringing in the energy into the room and like oh let me my friend has this play in this workshop i want you to be in that reading i do the reading they seem to like me i say i'm available for what you need i get to audition for this like it, it was all kind of building so i always so i i didn't really think of rejection at that point because it was all just like i know it's not going to be easy mm-hmm. like actually I, I say all that except for one opportunity that I had that was like a really sobering experience when I moved here. I think so. I moved here in '03, mm-hmm. and in '05, somehow through everything I'm talking about, just kind of meeting this right person at the actor studio and them introducing me to this agent and that agent, going, "Okay, kid, I'll send you out a few times." I mean, I had an audition for Superbad, that movie. Yeah, and. I ended up getting six callbacks for it. Really? And at that point, because there's three main characters, and by that point they had had me read for like each one at some point. And by like the sixth one, it was uh, I was in the room with like the director, and like they were just tossing, you know, like things to improv about. And Uh and I was going back and forth, and I was like, oh my god, this is easy. (laughs) I mean, like two years in, I'd already done one like off off Broadway play that paid me. I still have the check copy framed. It was 25 bucks. I mean, I got paid a little more. I mean, it was like 25 bucks a week. (laughs) Still, that was my first money being made as an actor. Yeah. But so I'd had that. And then I was like, oh, now I'm up for this huge movie. It was was amazing. I'm like, oh, this is so easy. Of course, these people are going to love me. And then I obviously didn't get it. And then like a few months later, that agent dropped me. And then there was like this period of like years of nothing. Or when I say nothing, it was like, you know, back to student films, back to a Columbia thing, back to like small theater. 
And uh, I think it that was really important for me because, of course, I was bummed. But uh, a part of me even then realized, I was like, well, you didn't think it was going to be that easy, dude. You? Like, yeah. you can't just... It, it is what it is. No, totally. And that's... I mean, there's the... What's... There's that I... I mean, I... As someone who's been pursuing my craft for a long time, I can relate to that where you have, like, I had a band, like, back in the day that seemed to get some success and things were looking really good, and then it just kind of fell apart right when you thought things were, it's like, oh, man, it's finally paying off. Right. And I, for years, have looked back on that and been, like, almost grateful for it because it's like, dude, at the time, I was, like, taking the wrong drugs you know like do it just right. you know experimenting with the wrong shit and, and pursuing a life that was like not really genuine to what i'd really want to pursue now or you know like not really being true to myself and had i had access to money at that point in my life i'd probably not be alive anymore oh yeah you know like because i was like and i was a I, you know, like I just fucking like. How to, old were you? I was that band broke up when I was twenty one. I was like pretty oh, freshly yeah, twenty one. No. See, so that's basically what I was too. Yeah. yeah. If I had been given some Jesse Eisenberg money, yeah, or some Jonah Hill money at that time, oh my god, you know. But also the thing about that, and I don't know if you feel this way too, but I would not have been fortified for that, right? Like, so with the little bit of like success that I've had recently, kind of just seeing like just an inkling into the the world like kind of like the whole the showbiz like mm-hmm. the, the, the situation it, to if i were to deal with that as a 21 year old without all the life experience that i've had up until now i would have it would have probably been terrible i mean it would have been yeah. what it was going to be but i don't foresee i would not have wished that upon myself i'm much more fortified uh at this point in my life to kind of handle whatever comes my way totally good or bad yeah um, and um, and you appreciate the good in a lot of ways way more than you ever would have yeah, well, you know, God, yeah. and and I still on a daily basis catch myself taking way too much shit for granted. You know, like I, yeah. and because I think that this pursuit of a like a creative passion or like just like pursuing a creative life can really, it just it it's like developing a relationship with rejection or disappointment. You know, and yeah. it can really beat down on you, and and so then you kind of it's really easy to miss the good things or to take some things for granted, and then. Mm-hmm. um I don't know. Now I, these days, I try and like make it like an effort on a daily basis to be like, take a moment. Like you got this beautiful dog in a great apartment, and you live in New York City, and you wanted to do that for most of your life, and you finally did it. You know, and it's like, I don't know. It it, it takes a moment to because everything. It's like, well, yeah, I've been in New York for seven years, and it's all, it's all like in the realm of complacent if I let it be. You know, or mm-hmm. like, or like, oh, this is annoying. I like it, it's so loud. This my my neighborhood's so loud, and I blah blah blah. And it's like this is what you signed up for. This is what you wanted. Yeah. All you ever wanted, and now you're like annoyed by it. Yeah. Come on, take a moment. Let's step back, and like really look at at your life. Okay, things are pretty fucking great. Yeah. You know, there's some things that I'm like, oh, it would be nice if this would come through, or if like, you know what I mean. But it's like, I don't know it. It's important to take that step back, I well, guess. And that just comes with maturity and age and all yeah. of your life experience. I I have a, there's this workshop of, of friends and collaborators, other actors, that um, I started going to within the last like six months. Um, this friend of mine has this big house, and she's an actress that I know from the actor's studio. And we have she has people over, and we workshop things. Cool. And today we didn't have anything to workshop, and it was just a bunch of actors sitting around kind of 
talking about, you know, their disillusionment with their career and just like kind of where we all are, are at because, mm-hmm. you know, and um, this guy said something really interesting is that at least in our profession, I don't know what it's like. I'm sure there's a something similar in guys that perform music live. But over the pandemic, because our art had to stop, mm-hmm. unlike painting or writing or whatever else, because our performing art had to stop, we had to really kind of take stock of why we do it, what we get out of it. You know, it, it, totally. it, it was a true, like on a, on a universal scale, everyone that does something performative in front of people had to stop. And so it kind of caused a lot of people to have a reset. And, and, it, and to his mind, it's made him more grateful, right? You know, kind of like yeah. what you're speaking on, like practicing gratitude. Because also at the same time, we can all sit and go like, I'm not getting the right amount of auditions or I'm not where I need to be. The other half of that conversation was, you know, complaining about, well, there's this film I did. I don't really like it, but I have to start doing press for it. And it's like, you know, there's a, there's a kid out there that has never done a film and, mm-hmm. and would love to have that problem. Totally. You know, and and so we all kind of had to um, to to try and figure out what it means to be successful in this business, right? Like, or any kind of business, obviously. But it just made me think about something that I was told a long time ago by my acting mentor. His name's Austin Pendleton. He's my teacher. He directed me in a lot of things. And, you know, he's had a wildly up and down career. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, he was the stuttering lawyer in My Cousin Vinny. And, oh, okay, yeah. You know, he, like, discovered Philip Seymour Hoffman and mentored Ethan Hawke as a young man. And, like, he's written plays. Like, people, you know, kind of laud him. But he's, all, you know, he's still, like, this schlubby guy that, you know, doesn't get auditions or work sometimes. So mm-hmm. he's had, he's run the full gambit. And the thing he said about success is how you most easily define success is how you handle your disappointments. You know, because there's really no other way to do it. Because no matter who you are, you're going to have a disappointment in whatever endeavor you're you're doing. Totally. And if you handle your disappointments with bitterness and with uh, self-flagellation or whatever that's negative, then that's that shows you how successful you are, which might not seem very because you're not putting out good energy about it. Yeah. But if you take, you know, your disappointments and you learn from them or you navigate them or you change your relationship to them whatever it is then that kind of is a more it's a better indicator of how successful you are to me yeah no i love that i really dig that because i i've been the pendulum's been swinging hard for me lately as far as uh like being happy and being disappointed or or like questioning my career choices and all of that stuff you know and it's like and like I said, it's been swinging wildly. Same with my relationship with New York of like going from being like, I hate this place is miserable. And it, and the reason I'm miserable is because of this place to being like, oh, I love New York City. Everything's perfect. And like, I, it's, you know, so, so manic, right? Yeah. yeah and it, um, but that's how like I've been feeling a lot the past several months about like music and, and uh, just touring and all of it, you know, is, is just like sometimes the disappointment is, is not being handled super well in my own brain. Mm-hmm. And then have in like having a moment like this and being like, now there's lots of things to be really grateful for. And, and yeah. um, I, I really love that. The, your success is defined by how you handle your disappointments. That's yeah, that's really valuable. Yeah. I've tried to make it a practice uh, of just walking around every day. Cause I, I like to walk just cause it's a beautiful city to walk around. Mm-hmm. 
and you know just kind of going through things that I'm grateful for and things that are going really good in my life you know and it, you know as cheesy as it sounds I mean I shouldn't say it's cheesy I think I should like debunk like walking around and having positive thoughts is like somehow goofy or something it's like the most important fucking thing totally for people especially nowadays especially with like the world and the state it's in to just remember what what you have to be grateful for uh-huh you know yeah we have to be grateful for and like what like what there is still to be there's still so much to look forward to you know totally. and not in a way of like you know be aware and in, in the present but like like it just can seem like oh it's going to just be another disappointment another disappointment blah blah you know and it's like and then eventually i'll be dead and yeah. it's like no, there's going to be some real awesome highlights there. Like, you still got plenty of that left, right. you know? And depending on how you look at everything, it's like, I I have friends, I have a couple friends that, like, I swear to God, they live their lives, like, where the highlight reel is just always on. And then by that, I mean, like, they just always in a, like, good or happy or pleasant mood. And mm. someone who can be very manic i guess you know like all over the place it's really nice to to meet people it's like oh that's a possibility like like you can and i I asked my friend georgia about it recently and she's like honestly when i am there's plenty of times where i'm upset or i want to be angry or crabby or she's a bartender so uh-huh. i want to be upset with a customer or whatnot but that shit lives with me for so long that if i don't make an effort to be nice to everyone it's just like my day is that much worse oh yeah and i'm just like oh man i need to i just don't give a shit I'm like fuck you and then i forget about you you know what right. i mean which is probably not great but right uh so yeah i don't know when you uh i'm sorry how no, does, no 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 um, i just just thinking about that when uh, i think it's a, the reason why i don't do social media is like the very brief amount of time i was on it some years back i i noticed and i don't know if this is how the people you're talking about manifest it, but like, you know, when you see someone's like uh, Instagram or their feed and it just, their life looks fucking great. Mm-hmm. Right. And then let's say, you know them personally and then you start really talking to them about stuff and their life is, you know, in kind of shambles. Yeah. <laughs> but that what they, what they put out is like this kind of like positive thing. So I think there's also like a, there's a, there's a dark side to the fake it till you make it sometimes. Cause like, mm-hmm. Kind of like what I was experiencing today when talking with all these, all these other actors is like, it's really nice and vulnerable to be sitting around people who are all just being really honest about, you know, how scared they are or, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't feel like they are where they should be or whatever, you know, kind of like you're saying, like, there's times where you hate to see time where you love it. I mean, like, be honest about it. Just like kind of once you let it out, you're able to kind of exercise it a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um Especially with this pandemic, I don't even know what there's. They're going to be encyclopedias written on the, what this has done to the psychology of people. Yeah, seriously. You know, it's it's kind of. I mean, it is like the nine eleven in actual. Obviously, many more deaths, but you know, just like that psychic event that happens, and there's like pre COVID, after COVID. Yeah. I I mean I don't see how there's any other way to look at it. And this is like a generational thing, like kids. Who don't even know what's going on, but remember, like I had to breathe my own air for two years with my mask on, and I couldn't see my friends' faces. They're probably gonna have dreams that'll slip into their subconscious that they only see eyes. Who knows? Like it's fucking crazy. What, yeah, what we're in. No idea what it's gonna. Yeah, and that's not term. like an anti mat That's nothing like that. It's just the fact of what is happening. It's just gonna it be. 
it's just crazy. Totally. My yeah. sister and brother-in-law have been very, very, probably the most COVID conscious people I've, I know personally in the past two years. And my, my nephew is four years old. And so the two years, half of his life so far oh has been spent like hardly leaving their house, hardly. It's mostly to like protect him and, yeah. and, you know, and it's like, and I totally get it. It's actually like, I see it as very noble, the effort that they've gone through to like, keep themselves very safe but also man what kind of effect is it going to have on on him that he's like hardly seen any other kids for two years you know that's between a, that and kids growing up i sound so old but kids growing up with like looking the at the ipad screen. and looking at the screen so yeah. like everything is becoming inside mm-hmm. yeah it is it is bizarre how that's how that's happened and it's like i've like i said i've got a meeting later that's like over zoom and it's so they right. can share their screen with me and so and people have been doing this for years but i i didn't really jump i rode that unemployment train for a long time i never really had to get super into the zoom thing except for for a couple like zoom concerts or whatnot Mm -hmm. and then now i'm trying to like jump into corporate america with like video meetings and screen sharing and all of that stuff and i'm like oh i'm like two years behind the curve on all this you accidentally put a filter on your face as a dolphin yeah stuff (laughs) like that i'm just like jesus i used to be it's like i'm starting to notice my age in a lot of ways you know like just like oh you're like the like not like i do video editing and uh for one of my clients they're they're targeting like gen z Right, And so it's like me and a bunch of, well, not really me, I'm just getting told what to do, but they're all like a bunch of millennials being like, oh, I think this is what Gen Z wants. And it's like, man, I remember when I was editing stuff just out of college for a bunch of Gen Xers trying right. to market towards me and my friends. Yeah, because how old are you? I'm 34. Yeah. 35 so yeah i mean we are technically millennials yeah and we're not we're certainly not old enough to be generation x but like it's still it feels different like it feels like we're in some weird like we shouldn't be millennial but we shouldn't be gen x yeah it's that weird in between where it's like the internet didn't really exist when i was a child and then it became a thing and now it's everything i think someone put it that we are like the 34 35 actually shit i'm 36 I, forget, I always forget. I forget that how old stuff. I am sometimes. Too. But um, the uh, we're the Oregon Trail generation. So mm. if you grew up playing Oregon Trail on those old Macs, those mm-hmm. like Macs with the tiny screen, yeah, that there is a certain amount of millennials that have no idea what that is because they're like Oregon Trail, not whatever. And then Generation Xers didn't do it because mm-hmm. they they didn't have it because they were already out of school. So there's like this little Oregon Trail generation that's like the 34, 35, 36, 37, yeah, 38 year old now. And that's what I want to call it. I'm the Oregon Trail generation. That's uh, that's interesting. When uh, when you were playing Oregon Trail, was it at public school or were you like, did you guys have a family computer? No public school. It was just public like in school. the library. Yeah, I, I I think we even did it for a class once. I don't. I mean, or, or maybe I don't know. They, maybe it's just like our. It wasn't recess because that would be outside. But you know, there was definitely a dedicated hour or so to mm-hmm. like. My grandmother getting dysentery, and, like the dog <laughs> yeah. dying, and like totally trying to buy vegetables. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I I remember being uh, in like computer lab, like when computer. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was a computer lab class. Yeah, computer know. lab wasn't like a thing when I was in like elementary school, and then we got to middle school, and it was like this new thing, like 
Uh, oh, yeah, because you learned to lab. type. Yeah, like Mavis I, Beacon, I, Bacon, home, Mavis Bacon. Home Row. What's Mavis oh, Bacon? Oh, Mavis Bacon was a program we used to learn how to type. Well, that sounds actually kind of familiar. Yeah. I haven't thought about this in years, but yeah, you learn Home Row. I learned how many words per minute I could type because mm-hmm. they could test you on that. Yeah. I remember in junior high having, this is kind of a weird tangent, but having a, like we had a, a typing class uh, and and I got to the point because I, I think this speaks volumes to how my brain works. I got to the point where any conversation I was having, I was picturing myself typing all the words as I was saying them. Ah. And I was like, I got like really fucking fast at typing and like to where, but it was like almost like a no, like I couldn't, after that class ended, I couldn't stop it for like a few months. Like I couldn't stop myself from just anything I ever said, just typing it, like picturing it. And I've always yeah. like been like, man, if I could slip into that, while trying to learn a new language oh yeah that brain space like i don't know how just like fucking 13 14 year old me just was did that with typing it was probably the tactile oh yeah the actual act of doing it because you know learning a language you know or any other kind of learning you're just kind of hearing it and taking it in but with that like you're physically you get that satisfaction those old keyboards doing you know that that big papoom that you yeah. get like kind of two little clicks. Yeah. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it could have been um the tactile. It's like gamified too, you know, like right. cuz I do like really I've always liked video games, so that could have something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm really competitive and I wanted the fastest in oh, my well, then class. There you go. So like that's probably but it was just like I remember being like even thinking like, dude, I can't stop my brain from thinking about every word like this. Like that's it, crazy. It was weird. It was wild. <laughs> if anyone's listening and knows that what's wrong with me, please yeah. shoot me an email. <laughs> Here's another tangent on that. I always I had this theory a couple years back that you remember when we learned cursive? Uh huh. And it was so important for kids to learn cursive, which I don't like, I get that a lot of elementary school is probably just busy work. Like, we got to get them doing something. Uh, but I, I, I wonder, I kept wondering, I was like, when we were growing up the 90s, it was like it, computers were in, you know, and even when you write a letter, you mostly you write it in whatever, what's the word for non-cursive? Print or, just like I print, just right? Print, yeah. And, you know, you print your name, all these things. I never understood why we had to f- spend so much energy on cursive, and then I, I had this flash, and I was like, "Oh, it's just so that we know how to sign our names on contracts." Because mm. think about it, when you sign a contract, you never print your name; it's always signature. Yeah. Because like, what? Are, it's not the you know we're not writing our lover from the Civil War battlefield. Like we don't. No one writes this longhand cursive anymore in letters, and even if they do, that's like just this romantic thing. It's not yeah. practical. And I was like, oh, the only practical application for knowing cursive is to sign our name. When else do you use cursive? Never. Never, right? Yeah. But you know it because you know your name. Yeah. I wouldn't probably know how to do anybody else's name very easily. I'm just so used to doing mine, but, you know. Yeah, I might still be able to, like, write some stuff in cursive, but I'd be, like, just making some letters up. Yeah. You know? Anyway. I, I, used, to, I used to do that, like, in, like, homework that was supposed to be in cursive. I'd just be like... And that's how a lowercase b looks. Right, right, you know right. what I mean? And it's, some of them you look at and you're like, "That's an S. That was an what S." Or like the G. Yeah. I like I like doing them because they're it's just kind of fun. But it doesn't look like yeah. just it's just weird. Yeah, it's it's a dead language. It's like Latin. Yeah, <laughs> and for and some re for some reason that's the only. Do way they still to teach like kids cursive these days? I wonder. They have to because how else would they know how to sign anything? I mean, like, there's no you don't you don't sign up you don't print your name. 
when you sign. I guess now everything's DocuSign and everything's on uh, online. No, it's just but like still, a computered version of. Yeah, but still, you got to make a little squiggle or something. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if they teach kids curse. I'm sure That's they do. Yeah. Email me at dirtbagsguy at gmail dot com. So we, yeah, if, yeah. You, if you're a teacher and yeah, you can tell me if you're still teaching kids curses. Yeah, thoughts on this. You guys still hit kids with rulers? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the so the time that you were things kind of were s- slowed down after the the super bad audition. You said things kind of like dropped off for a long time. What were you doing though during those times? Just like practicing your craft. Yeah, living. I mean, you know, I always would take classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always be in friends' little things or the occasional uh, short film, but you know, it was kind of it was a it was a long period of of nothing for a long time, especially career wise. But also, I was like young. I was twenty one, twenty two, twenty three in the city, so you know, I was I wasn't bartending yet at that point. I was still I was a pedicabber for many years, bike mm-hmm. taxi. Oh, got gotcha. you. Um, did a little bit of bike messaging. Um, had a lot of different little odd jobs before I finally like just succumbed to like, okay, I'll do the waiter thing. Yeah. Seems a little more easy and flexible on the knees. But, um, so yeah, I was just, you know, kind of maybe not as focused as I should have been, but, you know, I was trying and trying. And Mid-20s. Mid-20s in New York. Focused, uh, yeah, yeah, just going through life stuff. Yeah, I get that. I and moved then, here mid-20s, so. Yeah. And then, you know, just like every, just like anything, especially if you don't really have a leg up, you just have to chip away at it again. And then, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, you, you, you reach out to enough agents and managers with your little reel and your little headshot, and finally someone says, okay, I'll try you. And then from that, you get auditions, and from that, hopefully you get something, and then it starts to snowball. I remember, like, I got my first Law & Order in 2012, and that was, like, my first big TV thing. Really? Know? And I was like this rapist on Law and Order, <laughs> and I get to meet Ice T, and you know I have these cool little scenes. Yeah, and well, that's uh, that's kind of like a rite of passage for yeah, the New York actors. It is, and it was my first like I mean I had actually done background work on Law and Order like you know seven or eight years before that, just like standing outside mm-hmm. in the freezing cold in like February. Yeah, for six hours, you know, for a hundred dollars a day. So I don't count that, but you know, but yeah, the, the Law and Order was the first, actually. Technically, Girls was the first, but my whole shit got cut. Like everything got cut out of that. Oh, <laughs> See, really? Like, I had this like scene in this episode of like the first season of Girls with lines and everything, and then yeah, they just hit the cutting room floor. Oh, so I kind of don't count that. But um, and then you know one thing leads to another, and then I started like this kind of period of time where I was just getting a lot of. I don't know. I don't even know all the terminology, weirdly, but I don't know if it's guest star. But where it was only like I was in one episode of certain shows. I did a lot of police procedurals mm-hmm. as like the bad guy, the scumbag, the drug dealer, the drug addict, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the the lunatic kind of guy. Because I just kind of have that look about me. I guess mm-hmm. you know, just how I walk <laughs> around. Which that's it's fine by me. I mean, it's. I think I lied to you. The light's going this way, not I know. this way. I'm I really know, that's sorry. Fine. That's totally good. If you I, need to I have, adjust. I have ways of hiding. You can... the, an actor always finds his light. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> the light found you this time. Uh, <laughs> if only. The um, that's a that well, like that's one thing is like the the look is like it's sometimes like 
the few times I was on the the director side of like auditioning people for stuff like that, that was part of why I like it was really hard for me because we're like, man, everybody was fucking so good, or yeah. you know, like there's some people like that person just stumbled in here, you know, like but like everyone else was really good. It's just like that person looks the most like so and so's moms, so I'm right. gonna give that person the part. Yeah, you know, and it's like so many times it would just come down to a look. Well, that's the other part of developing a good relationship with rejection is Mm -hmm. recognizing that absolutely is an accident has nothing to do with me has nothing to do with you and the way i've kind of um the way i manifest that for myself is that you get the roles that you're supposed to get Mm -hmm. the ones you don't get were not yours anyway it wasn't your part so if you look at it that way then that kind of cancels out bitterness because you can't be. You can be disappointed. You can be maybe kind of like I thought that was sad it. Yeah. about it, but you can. But you can never go. That was my role. I did. You know, as long as you have done your best in any endeavor, obviously. But just speaking from the only thing I really know about of acting, as long as you've prepared the scene well, gone in and done it well, like you know, did the research well, you know, did as good as you think you can do. At that point, it's out of your hands. And if you don't get it, it's because it was never ever going to be your role. Ever. Mm-hmm. You were never going to get it. But don't look at it in a negative way. What you have done is done a really good job in front of that casting director. Mm-hmm. And maybe that casting director even liked you enough to send you into the producers to look at. And if you still didn't get it, the producers still got to see you with exactly what you're bringing. And then at some other point, there might be a project where like, oh, hey, remember that guy that was this, that, and the other? It's It's always... Uh, a showcase for just you to do what you supposedly love doing, which is act. Yeah. So that's the only way to look at an audition. It's completely out of your hands. And the only thing you can fuck up on is if you just don't do the work or if you, you know, you just kind of phone it in or whatever, then it's on you. But if you've done the work and you've done everything to the best of your ability, then if you get the role, that's, then that's the role you're meant to get. If you don't, then you got in front of people Yeah. and they got to, they got to see you. Yeah, and it's all, I mean, I heard on a podcast once, and there's two comedians talking, but they, uh, one of them said there's like there's more than one way up the mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's got their own path up the mountain. Yeah. But that's like, you know, a part you didn't get is is still like steps towards the top of the mountain. Totally. You know? And look, it doesn't always feel that way. Obviously, we're, we're waxing on it. Like from oh, yeah. A, from a, uh, like a, you know, like this, you know, uh, from a vantage point. But... You know, it's so it's good to recognize that, you know, you're not always going to arrive at that conclusion right away. Yeah. When dealing with whatever rejection you're dealing with or whatever it is. But to know that that is the ultimate reality of it Mm -hmm. helps. Totally. Deal with your little baby self who's all like kind of, "Mm, why didn't I get that, you know? Yeah. No, I'm totally with you there. And I think uh, um, that's... uh, I mean, really, one of the most valuable things I, I learned in therapy the time I was going. I haven't gone lately. I should probably should start go. that up again. You should go back. I was pretty broke for a while, so I was like, I can't afford this. But, like, I think I might be able to start going back. There's ways. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that was really valuable is, like, it's like, I forget, she said something along the lines of, of the point isn't to... Um, like change your reactions to things because like a reaction is something you really don't control. It's involuntary. Yeah. Like, but like controlling it or like 
containing it enough to where then you can choose how to respond to things. Mm-hmm. You know, so like you, yeah, you can be disappointed by something like that's a very totally natural thing. Mm-hmm. But like continuing to be disappointed about the part you didn't get for longer than the day you got the rejection right. isn't doing anybody any good or turning it into bitterness yeah or turning it into something like oh uh, self-flagellation or something I, another thing austin pendleton said was because he would get horrible reviews for things you know sometimes yeah, I've, and I've, I've he, had a few <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and he said a, a a bad review should can ruin your breakfast but it shouldn't ruin your dinner yeah so I think that's kind of like what you're. you're I love that. On. That's that's great. It's like and it, uh, yeah. I mean the the few I've had a few bad reviews and one of them it was like, it was with that other band I mentioned before and I it was purely just like yeah it ruined our breakfast but then, like dinner was like, spent like eaten standing up because we were working to like prove that fucker wrong there you go you know so, what so i mean you turn that into something positive totally like, oh, okay that's how they feel about and it and what's no. funny is that same person reviewed like our next record and was like well i spent like five thousand words on the last review talking about this and then they made a record to just make me look like an asshole because this record's fantastic like it was it was really cool to oh, have have him that particular person you know, like respond to the next thing and being like, it's not like we made that next record for that person because that would be ridiculous. Yeah. But just being like, oh, that's what they think. Well, hopefully they'll re- respond or review this next one because this next one's not going to be like that. I've always had a, I don't know where I'm completely at with this. And I think that's fine because I think it's that complex with just the nature of critics and criticism because I, you know, I think it's obvious that uh, it's a necessary art. Uh, in a way only if it's constructive Mm -hmm. right like because you know i don't know what the nature of that criticism was but if it's just to be like this is trash no one should listen to it whatever i'm not saying that's what it is but like in the most negative sense criticism you know is uh Criticism should be a conversation, right? It should be yeah. like how, like you should take the art or whatever you're 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 trying to speak on seriously enough that you're um, that you're asking questions and you're saying this is maybe where it failed me, but I don't know what you know. Totally. You know what I mean? So I, I can't really articulate it that no, well I because I don't want to. It's a double-edged sword, right? Like if you get a good review or a good notice, then that might fill your head with uh, something that maybe you're not. Um, you can be grateful, but that means then you have to take the the bad reviews just as seriously, right? Yeah. And then so someone says like, "I don't think this person was sincere in their performance," then then you have to take that as seriously, and that's a conundrum, right? Because you yeah. don't want to take you don't want to do that. So what do you do with it? And so at that sense, uh, I think you just you just kind of have to. Well, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Like, I mean, uh, about criticism in that regard, and like the responsibility that a critic has to um, the art, and then to who's reading it about the art. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I think uh, inherently, like critics, critics are inherently cynical. You know, not all the way across the board, but it's like I don't see. I could be wrong. I don't see many people that become a critic of something that didn't try and fail at doing that specific thing. Sure. Um, and not, and like, I'm not, that's not like 
I mean, failure is how is our greatest teacher. You know what I mean? So I'm not I'm not saying like, oh, this person's a failure, so they became a critic. It's just right, right. like um, you have to know something intimately, and if you're going to critique it, right? Um, and I think that what you said about it being a conversation or just shitting on something. Like, I can just shit on things all day long. Like, I wake up in a bad mood. I can just, I could shit on everything if you want me to. You know what I mean? And I'm pretty good at just like being like, that sucks, that sucks, that sucks, that sucks. It's easy. It's yeah. fucking easy. Totally. That's what an angry teenager does. But then when you, know you go, what I mean? well, well, why is it trash? Why yeah, is it this? yeah. Why? That being and like, then, and then, oh, this choice was not, I think this would have strengthened this or blah, blah, blah. Or like, this part of this record didn't really speak to me the way that their previous work had right. or you know what i mean i think and it's really kind of like a, a, my most valuable teacher in high school was an english teacher named miss peterson and her she had like a stamp that was like show don't tell like if mm-hmm. you're if you're like telling me about this thing no 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 like sh- show it to me like mm-hmm. like like i need to picture this that's that's a uh, imagery you know totally and if a critic is showing you why it doesn't work for them then that's probably a really thoughtful piece sure if they're telling you why it sucks then that critic probably sucks well and i think that this conversation doesn't just extend to quote-unquote professional critics as well like i mean i'm sure we all have those friends that you know what did you think of that movie it's fucking garbage the movie is yeah. garbage and you're like that is the i i hate when people do something like that right like yeah. because i just know how much it takes you know, to make, to make movies, movie right? Or and like, a, yeah, yeah, let's. I'm not talking about dude, where's my car or something. Like, like whatever. Like it, if if it's something that somebody obviously put some thought into. Mm-hmm. If you don't like it, and there's plenty of movies that that people love that I really, really don't like. Yeah. But I can back them up with like reasons why I don't like it, yeah. right? And they might not be, or this wasn't my aesthetic, or I I think it's dishonest because of this, right? So I think it extends to, to everyday people too. Mm-hmm. When they're when they're thinking about a piece of art, I think it's too easy to be like kind of like, well, that's garbage or like that's a piece of shit or this, that, and the other. It's like, okay, well then why is it a piece of shit? Mm-hmm. You know, what about it is a piece of shit? Yeah. Like, and then if you can effectively articulate that, hopefully better than just saying it's a piece of shit because you've kind of already started off wrong, then that's a conversation. Yeah, but if you just shut something down like that, I mean, you know how fucking hard people work on records. You know, yeah, hard, totally. You know how hard people work on like commercials, like yeah. Activia commercials. Like everything is an effort, you know. So like, try and extend the courtesy to uh, remember that. Yeah, I think that's a such a important way of living your life is is like in a way leading with like compassion and empathy. I say this a lot on the podcast, and I say it a lot in life to remind myself because I'm. That's not where usually. That's not always where my first foot is. Mm-hmm. Is like sure. stepped in compassion or empathy, you know. And and you know, I had a moment driving here from band practice earlier, where like you know how driving in New York, it's like there's people uh, double parked, so like the two lane street just turned into one lane, mm-hmm. and um and so you, it's kind of fluid, you know. I try and get over, um, and this guy doesn't let me over. You know, and then like later on, two, three blocks later, same things happen. Happen same. I'm ahead of the guy again, because that's how the traffic works. You know, people drive super fast to try and get there, and you're just you're just staying with the same cars. You know, and then once again, same thing happens. Dude doesn't let me over, and like I'm behind him at the light, and like he looks in his mirror at me, and I'm just smiling at him. You know, and like I and I can tell he's just not. He's like muttering under his breath at me or something like that. And I and a part of me in that moment was like, I want to be really I would like 
I, I want to be angry right now, but I'm just going to find this funny, you know? Right. And I, I don't know, that's not really leading with empathy or compassion, but it was... No, it's, it seems like it's an understanding that aggression, meeting aggression, doesn't actually move, do anything. Oh, because I've got a lifetime of evidence of that, of being like, oh, fuck me, fuck you, let's yeah, do this, and motherfucker. Like, the guy and then it's like, like yeah. oh, he didn't let me over to It's like, that guy's the asshole. Like, yeah, in yeah, this yeah. situation, he's proven twice that he's the asshole. I don't need to prove that I'm an asshole. Right. So you if know? you meet it with the opposite, that actually, in some ways, does make you gain ground. Because like, what he wants out of that is to antagonize you. And so if you get antagonized, then he gets what he wants. And exactly. then his anger gets to be met. Oh, and I've got to piss someone else off so I get to see their anger. Yeah. But if you meet him with like, hmm. And he's like, well, I didn't get what I want. Yeah. I got the opposite of what I want. Yeah. Then you're, bo- then you're in a good place and now he's probably not in a good place but that's fine. yeah well, and hopefully he saw my smile and was like oh that didn't affect him maybe whatever's affecting me or making me an asshole shouldn't affect me so much right that's very much wishful thinking yeah, yeah, yeah. you know but uh, in a way that is an em- empathetic way I, is what i'm trying to say yeah no i guess i guess you're right that's uh i was trying to put it into an example of being like well but it was like no that specific situation i like sometimes i'll have someone so and it could be me my bass player jared's really good with this where i'll be like that son of a bitch, blah, 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 blah. And he'll be like, well, what if they did, what if this just happened to them and blah, blah, you know? And I'm just like, I'm like, yeah, probably not. He's like, but you don't know. You don't know, man. Like, yeah. how do you, why is it because it's it happened to you that they're the asshole? Like, you don't know what's going on in their day to day. Yeah. And, uh, you know. That's I, mean, very, I, I do try to remember that as well. Especially in this city where it's like every turn, every every corner you turn, it's just like, some ab- just abrasiveness right you know it's like hard to i spent uh, before covid i spent a solid year just not really leaving my house except to go to work and this is kind of like my mo in a lot of ways and I, I need to change because it's like i live in the greatest city in the world and i don't leave my fucking bedroom but the it's like i'm just so hyper vigilant and just like anxious about it used to be like running into people i didn't want to run into but in some ways, but also like it, it also turned into this, just like not wanting to run into anybody, and you, I can't walk out my bedroom door without running into. I have four roommates, you know, right. and like when you're like as, it's like almost introverted, introverted to the point where, it's like, um, I, I, it it's like ah oh, fuck I can't think of the word right now, like it, it stops me from living my life, mm-hmm. you know, which is weird because I'm also extremely extroverted. So. Right. Yeah, I've wondered how this um the pandemic and everything and the isolation from that has like you know you, you know the people that you knew before the pandemic that were introverts and like the last thing they wanted to do was go out to see you know your friend's band play or go to a movie with something like these loving inside like now they have a medical you know mm-hmm. and societal reason to say oh no i can't do that i just i wonder what that i mean are they in heaven right now are they still in heaven? Did it force their introspection to go to even more mm-hmm. unhealthy places? You yeah, know, like because you because it's everyone's doing it. Like it's not like you're not looked down on anymore, or at least for a while for staying in and not seeing people and yeah. not interacting. Like that was the that was like the the president mandated. That, yeah, totally. That you should do that essentially. So like, I just, I just wonder what that was like for true introverts. Yeah, for me, who's like kind of once again like on that spectrum, like I or the pendulum swings back and forth. It was, it was just a, a well. A, I mean, it is kind of like a 
I don't know what I'm trying to say. I haven't left my house or done nearly as much shit since it's been quote-unquote okay or ac- acceptable to do things. I've done, like, way less. I don't do anything. Yeah. Because it's like, well, now I don't have to. You right. know, but then, like, a couple weeks ago, it was last week, there was three shows in Manhattan three nights in a row that I wanted to go to. And I'm like, fuck. That's a, that, for me, that's just anxiety-inducing, thinking about going all the way to Manhattan three days in a row. And before COVID, was that a, would that have been a thing? Um, yes and no. Depends. I'm really good at going places if I'm going to make money. If not, I don't want to leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. weird. It's it's sad. And I, I'm trying to like no, break it. out of it a bit. But really, at the end of that week, looking back and being like, all three of those shows were... Actually, two of them were great. The one in the middle I went to, found out the person that I wanted to see had, had to cancel because of some emergency and was like, sweet, I'm going to go home. Yeah. You know, they were like, you should stay and watch the other bands. I'm like, I watch bands I don't know for a living. I don't want to do this like... Like I'm sure they're great, but like I spend so much of my life watching bands I don't know. Yeah, I'm gonna go home. <laughs> yeah, but at the end of those two shows, being like, and that week, and and every time I'm a little more social, looking back and be like, that that was great. See, this is good. You like this. You like people. People are okay. Mm-hmm. You know. And then, but then you spend like four or five days without seeing many people. You're like, I don't really know if I want to see people anymore. Right. I, I don't know. That's probably a bit of a tangent. But how do you fall on the scale? Do you um, are you super extroverted, introverted? I, I feel like I'm, you know, maybe it's a cop out, but maybe it's it's very similar to you. I I swing back and forth mm-hmm. with it. Like I love uh, just sitting home listening to records. Mm-hmm. I love it. Like that's that's uh, if that's all I had to do all week, I'd be very happy. But I also love people, and I love and maybe it's, it's just like the years of working in bars. Like I, you know, I I also love a good time. Yeah. you know and i and that involves people so it it really just depends it, and and in fact i think that's kind of a more healthy way to look at it cuz you know the reverse of that is you know you meet these people that always need to go out every night and they yeah. need to go out and they need to have people around them yeah. their friend like they can't go to a movie without someone else they can't go to a bar without someone i love going to a bar and just sitting there and reading i love going to a movie by myself i mean yeah. if there was a friend that wanted to come with me then that'd be even that'd be fine but if i couldn't find anyone just go watch a movie you're sitting there it's right there i i have a good again relationship with with being alone and uh and so yeah i feel, I feel like it's just a time and a place and sometimes you get too much alone time and you need like to, to to connect with people again because yeah. at this stage in my life i try to only surround myself with people that uh that you know are really healthy to be around right yeah and totally. so again that's also part of the problem like if you have a problem with seeing people maybe you're just hanging around the wrong people you know yeah. but if you're around people that are actively trying to better themselves or actively trying to um assess their own mental health mm-hmm. you know then you're gonna be in good company and you guys can like kind of have a good time yeah, that's I. I mean, that could be part of why I struggled is, especially in recent years, because like, uh, pre-COVID, I guess at this point, I, I like mostly quit drinking a few years ago, and uh, um, you know, like I, I might have a beer here and there, and you know, like I, I've got my own rules with it, and I'm totally comfortable with where I'm at with it. We don't have cool. to go super into it, but sure. that used to be my, um, mostly just to save time. I don't really care, <laughs> but uh the 
but that used to be the thing is like, oh, I can go out and I can, I can be social because I've got this thing to like this social anxiety checker of like right. beer, like, or cigarettes or all, all of the things, tequila, like, and then trying to find a new or like realizing most of my network that's how they enjoy each other's company right is with substance you know and like i smoke lots of weed i do mushrooms and like you know i do all, all the things just booze is just like really not that appealing to me anymore like i watched i don't know it's just like not not that fun for me anymore and so that that is where i kind of struggle where it's like hard to find a group of people that like by the time everyone's had three beers there's like it sometimes feels like there's no reason for me to be here because whether mm-hmm. people realize it or not i can tell that you're you've had three beers mm-hmm. and it's like kind of like i don't know if I, it just starts getting uncomfortable for me so yeah. maybe that could be it maybe part of like my um introvertedness or my my lack of wanting to go out and do things is just because i'm like just haven't found the right environment lately I think I've been in in retrospect lucky. I've had a few times in my life where I've kind of had a mass uh what's the word for like losing culling of of like large friend groups, mm-hmm. you know, just from whatever things. And you know, sometimes you miss some of them for certain reasons, other ones you don't. But because of that, I've had like multiple opportunities to kind of start from scratch with people, uh-huh. with new people and develop relationships, you know that are sincere and you know emotional but over pretty pretty quickly mm-hmm. you know and um and i love that i i always uh, find it really nice meeting new people and kind of seeing where they're coming from especially this stage of my life yeah um, well i think it's very important no totally and that that's uh um something i've really done is like a lot of this friend group who's still like i mean all my roommates are part of that friend group you know and um my brother and I had a conversation the other day about it because I was like, honestly, with our friend group, like in this weird way, and maybe it's just my anxiety, I just like kind of always feel like the butt of the joke and I just don't want to mm. be, and that's just not fun. And he's like, uh, it's not really meant that way. It's more like you're always separate, like you other yourself because you're always the first person to leave or you're just mm. like, you just seem like it's transactional. You show up to like show face and then you leave and it's like, yeah, it's kind of that way in a way, but also like having someone say it out loud was like, oh, fuck. So like the times I've hung out since then, I've tried to be like more engaged or like I'll just zone in on one person who I'm like, I've known you for four years now. You and I have never had a one-on-one conversation because we're always just in this group of people who who's like a fucking hurricane at times, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. And so, and that's been really good for me is like, just like looking for that quality, genuine connection. Mm-hmm. And even if it is, I'm, I'm just here before everyone has three beers because really I just don't, it's just not fun for me to watch people get sloppy anymore. <laughs> Cause I think I yeah. see old me and I'm just like, ah, you wasted so much of your life being just, yeah, you know? And it's like, everyone else loves doing that. And me now I'm just like, ah, oh, you could have been, so you say mid twenties, a lot of wasted time. It's like, ah, oh, fuck, I could have been a little bit more, I don't know. I that, think that's why it's interesting you say that because I think that's I know a, a, a fair amount of sober people, and a couple of them are bartenders, and I'm just like, how do you st- like what is that? And they ne- they haven't necessarily articulated this to me, but I'm imagining that what's really helpful about it and why they can do that is because they're living 
you know, eight hours a day for however many days or nights is just watching people get really stupid. Yeah. Right. And then, then they can see that because I know, I mean, I'm not sober, but I'm a bartender now again. And, uh, you know, I see what booze does. I see, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, oh God, am I like that? Of course I am, I guess. But because yeah, we all are. But you it know, just reminds it's... you of like, I can, but I can completely see how it would be a good vocation in order to continue to keep yourself in check mm-hmm. around like what it, just what it looks like. And how it manifests itself with some people. Totally. Um, and I, unfortunately and fortunately, I guess, because of my career choices for a while, it's like music and bartending was just like, it's just like too much of that. Too yeah. much of the bar oh, world. And sure. I, I'm doing what I can to transition away from bartending post-COVID or post whatever. You know what phase, I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah, where we're at. And, uh, um, and I think part of that is like, everyone's like, dude, the money's way, like... It's like because bartending's great. You you work a few days a week. You can cover your ass, and then you have time to do everything else. Yeah, and and money to like not have to worry about it as much. But like, I don't. I just don't know if I could be nice anymore. Yeah. Or like, I don't know. I struggled being nice in the first place. So. Yeah. Once you hit that point, you got to move on from yeah. the thing because it's like you got to be nice unless you're like working in one of those like old Irish bars where the bartender's like you know fifty eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and the whole point is him being rude. Yeah, it's like if you're working in these like hipster bars in Brooklyn, like if you're gonna be rude, like just find another job. Like just be just be cool. Yeah, if I if I can't I can't sit here and answer ten questions about craft beer anymore. No, I so and I get I'm it. I'm not gonna do it. Then that might not be the right bar. For yeah, you. you might need to go to another bar where yeah. it doesn't. You know, someone asked me like, what What's your favorite drink? I said whiskey, and she said. You know that's not what I meant. And I'm like, I kind of did, but like, what am I gonna? <laughs> like, I know what you wanted from me, but like, just the way she asked, and she and to qualify, she said, "What's your favorite drink?" She didn't say on the menu. Yeah. So to well, be clear, it... I can have my little snottiness too, but I I step back and then I was like, okay, I get it. I like this drink. It's really good. You're yeah. Love it. Like my bass player Jared, also he bartends, and he he's like, anytime someone tells me to like make them a special drink or something like that, I make them like a vodka soda. Oh yeah. You know, because it's like, I'm. It's not my job to tell you what to drink. I can make suggestions, but like, if you're gonna give give it to me, I'm gonna make you the easiest drink I can make, so I can get to the next customer. Yeah. Anybody out there listening that thinks that that's a good question, all you, the the way you know how to ask that is if you see the bartender and they're if they're wearing like the leather apron, have a really nice haircut, you know. It, bow tie. They have like bow tie mixology that you know you can tell they they put flame to to orange peel to this. They absolutely want to fuck around and make you something. Yeah. Anybody else is not wearing a leather apron with the cool haircut and like the you know mo- like seventy five different uh, things on the bar that they have to include in a cocktail. They don't want to do it. Yeah. They don't. They they want to make you what's either there or what you want. Yeah, and the only caveat is if. Uh... Even if that person in the leather apron is busy as fuck, just order a drink. Oh yeah, well, and you yeah, know, like even, all of this means nothing if they're busy. If yeah, they're if busy, they're busy, know what you they, want. Get up yeah. there, order for all of your friends at once. Give them the money. Yeah. Like make it as easy as possible for them, and you'll be their favorite customer of yeah. the night. Yeah. All you got to do is make their job easy. And if you've never done their job, just think about what it takes to do that job. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like again, empathy. Empathy, compassion, yeah, and oh man, and I couldn't, I couldn't spend another minute of people treating me like I was dumb because I work in service. Yeah, that's like, that's, and I know it's, it's, it's got way more to do with me than it does to do with them. It's, it's like my own shit, 
But like someone assuming I'm dumb like drives me up a fucking wall. It's interesting because I almost feel the opposite. Not that that's necessarily wrong, but if they think you're dumb and they treat you dumb, then that has more to do with them. Again, it's kind of about how you react to it, right? Like if someone makes you feel dumb, that shows how much of a of an idiot they are. It has nothing to do with you. It, but what how you manifest that with yourself. Totally, and that's that's. I mean, that's the work I've got to do is to like not be so self conscious about or whatever, like whatever that reaction is that like, fuck you, I'm smart or whatever, like whatever that is. That's the work I've got to do. I guess I guess that's what I mean that it's got more to do with me than them. But like, no, you're totally right. Anyone who treats any sort of service worker with anything but respect is fucking trash. Yeah, you know. But then again. It's like, but then again, you know, like I've been a dick to people who didn't deserve it because I was having a shit day. Yeah. So like, I guess you just assume the best in people. <laughs> maybe maybe a service worker killed their whole family. Uh, you never know. Yeah, that's true. At Denny's. <laughs> um, man, I really like where this all this all went. Yeah, so man, me far. too. Uh, the so I do want to tie it back into acting. Uh, in like so once you so you got your first Law and Order. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you started getting some procedurals and, and things like that. What, what is, I don't know, just tell me about like those few years, like 2012 to, when did we meet? 2017, 2018? Yeah. No, 2018, yeah. 2018, yeah. 2018 we met. Um, I mean, you know, it was just, it, it was, it was just kind of tr- incremental success. And then my longtime agent at the time, her name was Barbara Andriata. She was like the old school new york agent she was like glamorous she uh had like photos of herself in her 20s just looking like a bombshell in her office in black and white she didn't have a computer she only called on the phone to the casting he's like you're gonna love this kid like she had the old voice she was fantastic and then she she died out of the blue oh no um you know which kind of like sent me reeling first of all because i just i love this woman Mm -hmm. and she had truly gotten me you know where i was at that time which is mm-hmm. which is a lot more than a lot of actors can say like i'd had like 10 12 credits to my name and so when she uh died it was it was really tough and i was kind of like left you know kind of floundering and like the interim people that kind of took over that agency i just i i they were very sweet and kind but i just felt like i needed to move on so then there was a it was that period of back to like I have to find an agent again. Mm-hmm. I, luckily, I have a little resume. I'm not just like off the streets, but yeah. you know I gotta hustle again, and uh, you know scratched up an agent, scratched up a manager, and and started auditioning again. Mm-hmm. And then you know what's crazy is like it's it's amazing to see back to how you handle your disappointment thing and just how much how many hills and valleys are in this career. Because then, you know, I get this big gig, the show High Fidelity, Mm -hmm. and everyone's like, off to the races, Zoe Kravitz, this is a great property, it's on Hulu, it's reviewed well, like, you know, the reviews were good for Mm -hmm. it. But, you know, it came out during COVID, and you would think that'd be a benefit, but for whatever reason, they decided to not uh, renew it for season two. And, you know, I kind of took that for what it was. I got that information, you know, during COVID when there was nobody making anything. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to ride this out. And then when things start, you know, coming back, I'm like, all right, I'm starting auditioning again. And, you know, soon enough, your savings start to run out. And you're like, okay, I guess I actually, I need to be a man and start making some money again. Yeah. 
And so now I'm back, you know, working at a bar. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm still auditioning. I still have the same agents and managers. But, you know, anybody thinking about this business needs to understand that uh, that I am in no way unique. Someone like getting like a big opportunity after 17 years. So it's not like completely out of the blue. This isn't like my super bad moment. Like it took me 17 years to get a leading role on a show that paid a very good wage. And I was able to quit bartending. That happens a lot. And then, you know, for whatever reason, things go a little south and you have to start over again. Yeah. And maybe starting over is not necessarily the right way to put it because I definitely, you know, I, I, I still am encouraged of... by my resume and what I've done. But like, totally. sometimes, some days it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Some days you're just back to like, you know, trying to scratch forward rent. Yeah. So, yeah. It's uh, interesting. I get that. That is that is very interesting. That's uh, because it's like, um, I mean, it it is such a recipe for bitterness or for oh, like yeah. like. Uh, I remember a friend of mine who's who's a drummer. Uh, he he plays in a lot of bands. He lives in like, I don't want I don't want to like give anyone away because they're yeah. So he lives in like a. Another city, not a big city, but like a decent sized city, and uh, he plays drums in a handful of bands. He's also a music producer, and and uh, he does a lot of things. But he, I remember him telling me about a band that he played in. He used to play drums for, and there's no longer a band anymore. But like it was an the older group, and the, the the main two people in it were married at the time. They're not married anymore, but they're they're probably in their like late forties, early fifties, maybe. You know. Um, or maybe they're mid forties. I don't know. They and like the dude would be like setting up and being like pissed off. Like I can't believe I'm at the point in my career still where I gotta plug in my own fucking pedals and my own yeah. guitar and blah, blah and just like, um, just like my friend would tell me the stories of the things that this person would say. And they're like touring Europe and they're touring. Mm -hmm. It seems like I've never seen this band play live, but based on their social media, it was like, man, I would fucking kill for that career. Like I would kill to be playing some of these shows. I just keep hearing about this. And that band, like I said, broke up. The they they got divorced like that dude. I don't even know if that dude it was plays Fleetwood in a band Mac, wasn't anymore. It? it was Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, it's Fleet. you know, you know. <laughs> you <can't just laughs> Damn it, you caught me. You caught me. Stevie <laughs> Nicks is also a friend. No, uh, they uh, and so it's just like and I remember hearing that story and this is like 2016, 2017 when I, I yeah. I'm hearing about this and uh, I remember being like, Jesus, if I ever am that guy, just take me out back and shoot me, right. please, because yeah. like, like, because. I mean, it's. I say this all the time. Like, if if you and I work this hard at like some job, as we do at our craft, you know, or, or like if it was the right job, like like working for an ad agency mm-hmm. or something like that, it's like, yeah, I'd be much more stable and I'd probably make a lot more money, and I'd still have to. I'd have to deal with a lot of stuff that I don't want to deal with, corporate, all of that stuff. Like, it's just like it's not me, but, um. But like so, so I, I don't know. I try and keep that in mind. It's like I if if you don't want to do this, don't do it. Right. If you like playing music or acting, acting's like the one profession where like you're supposed to get good at it, but you never get to do it. 
I know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. actors don't get to just go fucking act. Like, that's right. not... You know what I mean? So it's like... Which is why I hearken back to what I said about... Uh, hearken? The fucking... Yeah. Why? Uh, auditioning. If you have an audition, you're so fucking lucky. Not just because you have the audition, but it's a chance to act. Because you're exactly mm-hmm. right. Like, yeah, you're a singer-songwriter. You can sit all day long in your apartment with friends. You can play your music. But... Uh, Unless you're very fortunate to be surrounded by a, a group of like-minded actors that like to get together and workshop things, mm-hmm. which you should absolutely seek out if you're trying to be an actor or are an actor or whatever, uh, then you don't get those opportunities. So you need to take every single one of them as a chance to to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you... Like, I often say that my... Playing music's a compulsion for me. Like, it's compulsive. Like, I can't not play if i got free time i grab my guitar and i start working on a song that i've been working on or a new song or whatever and like i feel like acting in a lot of ways kind of has to be that way like if it's not something that you need to do mm-hmm. maybe you should do something else i started thinking in a literal way with that like acting is like you know this compose like one day i'm like this british banker yeah you, you know, know every day to, you're playing yes yes yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's some like charlie kaufman movie where like every day i had this thought and I don't know if I should say it because if I'll ever write it out. Yeah, nobody I, listens to this podcast, so like, it's not going to steal your idea. That's a good idea of like <laughs> these this film or short film of like these two actors. Or, well, okay, so you don't know they're actors. It's like a guy and a girl, and you know it starts and they're having this fight or something over whatever it is, and then at a certain point, like you know, you realize that they're reading off the script, and then you're like, oh, they're they're both actors and they're working on an audition, but then like in this Charlie Kaufman's world, each, you never know actually who they really are if they really are together because you're seeing their life through the lens of all these auditions that they're and they're good actors they're not like sometimes you know when you make movies about actors they're actually you know it's kind of funny that they're bad yeah these are really good actors so like each time you see them in whatever situation you're like wait is this is this now a real thing and they go, oh oh no this is actually another audition we haven't uh-huh. gotten to the real people yet okay interesting i don't know i just thought i thought no i like funny. that a lot that's uh if someone can write that and make it it good then yeah you know, before i can then go for it well you should audition david holmes for it because yeah, i'm available yeah <laughs> um what if you wanted to like or say if i i ask this to every time i have an actor on here which is like three times i think so i haven't had tons of actors but i always ask this is if i wanted to go out and start acting next week or like i wanted to start pursuing an acting career like what would you what would be your advice to me as step like not necessarily step one two three because like that could be boring and that's too much thought but like what would you say like in an impractical as or just advice mm-hmm. and then practical like like these are the steps you should take I guess I guess yeah give me steps <laughs> yeah um, let's see like in a okay. I think some of this, not to overthink it too much, but some of it is dependent on like kind of just what your socioeconomic background is. Mm-hmm. Because if you have all the money in the world, or your parents do, or whatever, and you know you can get into Juilliard or NYU or you know one of these kind of like more prestigious acting programs, then then do it because that's really good for you, and uh, and you'll get a lot of connections. If you're someone coming from a lower middle class background like myself, um. Don't go into debt. Don't go to a conservatory and and lock yourself away for four years just to have money that you will be paying back over the next 15 years. Go to a small acting studio. Go to a a city and meet other actors 
and form workshops and do plays and write things and shoot them because nowadays again sound like an old man nowadays you have phone cameras that can you can make a short film and put it on Vimeo and get a little attention like just do it like you know just absolutely completely fully do it and try if you don't have the money to avoid getting into debt to do it mm-hmm. if you have the money then fucking do it because whatever you, you got you very, get those you, connections you or those accolades or whatever like yeah if you if you can get those then yeah yeah because yeah those are great programs and you know you get what you pay for and but I, even saying that just because you come out of Juilliard or Yale or NYU doesn't mean you get an agent and then get a career but yeah. it certainly helps and but just if you can't afford it don't go into debt to go in those schools there yeah. you can do you can find your way through the maze of show business without it mm-hmm. i certainly have it might take you a long time but here's the the, the another main point is that uh, it, it might take you a decade to even get a, a big uh, job it might take you a decade to get paid yeah it. and i think that that's just one of the more important things to remember about this business is to not sugarcoat it to not um you know make it this fantasy where you know as long as if you're really talented you're just gonna, you know, the right person's gonna see me. It's it's just not true. There's way too many really talented people out there, and you just have to to keep at it. But it could take you that long, so you have to be fortified enough and be in a good enough place in your life to just accept that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, and it might not. You might, you know, like I did with super with the superbad thing. You might get, uh, well, I didn't get it, but let's say you do. And you mm-hmm. might be off to the races, but then your career might take a humongous downfall. Like, so I guess the point is just recognize that uh, it's a it's a very tough industry, and um, just do it with other people. Just just continue to do it. If it's something that you want, then you'll en- that'll be all you need, mm-hmm. and then the shit will start coming. Yeah, no, I I love that, and I think it's a uh, it's really good advice. I think I I think. Um. Yeah, you have to practice. You have to look at the the reality that like you may not make any money at this for oh, a yeah. decade. Yeah, you know, there's there's a pretty decent chance that that's the case. Right. You know, that's the difference between like there's there's all these similarities. I talk to comedians, musicians, actors. Like, it's all interwoven. Like this, like part of the point of this podcast is just like celebrating people who've decided to take like the more difficult and interest interesting's a loaded word but the more difficult life like the more mm-hmm. difficult difficult road is is pursuing one's passion you know yeah and well and another way to reframe that as well is and not to just be like counterpoint of just for the sake of it but you know there's a way of looking at it that it's you've chosen a more difficult path if you decide not to pursue what makes you happy yeah. Right. Like, totally. It, it, psychologically, that's you, you know you've, we've all seen the people that have spent forty years at a at a desk job they don't like mm-hmm. just to make ends meet for a family that maybe they're even got a divorce in and and they never express themselves the way they might have wanted to when they were younger. Yeah. And I think that's worse than someone that I know in the city who's been here twenty years that still bartends, but they're happy. Mm-hmm. most of the time right like that and they're still workshopping yeah. or still whatever they're still happy with their relationship with their craft and, yeah. and what and what they're producing you know what, what no matter what that is i guess um no I, I yeah that's that's where i like i was saying about my friend earlier and the band he played in it's like oh man if i ever am that person yeah. please like 
and I, I don't mean to be so like violent with it, but like dispose of me, like to, like, or just give, like, just be like, dude, maybe it's time to like go do a different thing. You right. know what I mean? And I, I've definitely like had those thoughts a lot in the past few months, as far as like, and like things are going relatively well for me musically. It's just like I'm not having a lot of ideas for new songs, and like mm-hmm. the stress seems to be outweighing like the the amount of time I get to actually play music. I'm just spending way more time doing all this other stuff that seems stupid and frivolous, which like booking tours and stuff like that, you know, it's like, uh, it's not stupid or frivolous. It's just not playing. It's not being a rock star, you know, sending emails is not rock and roll. Uh, but, but then realizing like, okay, well, if you're not, you know, just always keeping in mind, like, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is this really what you want? Could you be happier? Mm. Like trying to become a fly fishing guide in Montana? Mm. you know like and it's like some days i think i could be you know and some days i think maybe that's what i'm gonna do you know but most days i'm like kind of still want to be writing songs and playing music with my friends you know well there is a universe where those are not mutually exclusive yeah and right and i think actually i'm kind of headed in maybe not fishing guide in montana but like i'm heading like i don't think i'm gonna be in new york for much longer a couple more years probably i think about like culture wall man i mean i'm sure i know life's circumstances are different than yours obviously but the fact that he's an actual cattle rancher you know yeah in saskatchewan totally and you know this music thing probably brings him some bread of course but uh if he didn't have it he'd just be a cattle rancher totally you know and and he when he gets off the road he goes back and does that yeah i just don't have that other thing you know what i mean i don't uh and i mean that that is sometimes i feel like i've just taken I've tried to make jobs out of all the things I enjoy, so I don't enjoy anything anymore, which uh, is which is not true. Like it's it's not that's me being cynical. You're very self aware of yourself, though. This is that's it's good, and people should be more self aware. I think. I I mean, you spend enough time alone in your own brain, you kind of become self aware. I guess. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it doesn't work. I don't know. It's uh, but yeah, that that is that's something I think about a lot. It's like, oh, you're, um. You've tried to make a career at all. That's why I don't like do filmmaking anymore. Is like the first, my first few experiences like working in film out of college burned me out. Mm-hmm. I got on a set for the first time where everyone was, and I think I've never been on a set where everyone took it really seriously, but we were actually like making something worthwhile. I've been on plenty of sets where everyone took themselves very seriously while we were just making a dog turd. Like, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And like yeah. I mean that's that's but it's just like we're we're shooting a fucking commercial for a steakhouse. Like chill the fuck out, people. You know what I mean? And like yeah. getting on set and people acting like that and me being like I like making goofy shit with my friends. I don't like this. Yeah. This sucks. Yeah. Like and I I've said this on the podcast before, but like my first few jobs in the film world were just like this fuck this. This isn't fun. Yeah. And I just like and all of a sudden, I was a musician, <laughs> right? You know, and that just that just showed you that that the film life was probably not for you on that level, because like somebody yeah. else might see that and be like, "Yeah, I slogged for ten years in commercials, and you know, had some good moments, had some bad, but I'm still here, and I cut my teeth, and like you know, totally. that person is going to take those exact same experiences and just kind of uses them. I mean, like I've done so many terrible things, yeah, but that's all I knew. It was all just grist for the mill, you know, just kind of. Totally. Working my way up to it, but that's because I'm just so fortunate to know exactly what I want. Yeah. 
which well, is I, not everybody. So. No, not everybody has that. And I think I one of some of the work I really need to do is I don't work quite well with other people, and film is very collaborative. Totally, it's like one like point point me to the person that can make a film by themselves. Yeah, it, I was thinking the other day, and maybe this is too lofty, but I don't know. I don't know how to dispute this. That film is kind of one of those the ultimate medium because it's the only medium that encompasses every single mm-hmm. other piece of art. You have to have a good writer, so it encompasses writing. You have to have a good photographer to shoot it, so it encompasses photography. Lighting designer have to be lit really well. Sound has to be good. Uh, I mean, you name it. The soundtrack. Someone Sound, has to create yeah, a soundtrack. Score, like, like, and that's all all completely in service of one package. So you know, I think that's. Uh, pretty fascinating no i i read a book in college my favorite book in in the four or five years i went to film school that i wasted all that money which i, I wish i had just moved to la and started making trying to make movies or new york you know like yeah. i think your advice is really good i was kind of pushed really hard in the college direction yeah uh by parents who didn't go you know like that whole story gotcha, gotcha. um yeah. and all my siblings have really benefited from their college education mine seemed like in some ways more of an anchor than anything, but I did meet some really cool people, I guess. Uh, but that's the long way to say um, this book, Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, is, or Lumet, I don't know how. I never know either. Yeah, um, was the best thing about my, my entire film education was reading nice. that book. And essentially he goes through every single department mm-hmm. and making it in like the process of making a movie and just kind of very practically is like, this is what I do. This is how I approach costuming. This is how oh, I Oh, yeah, that's when we left out. A costume designer has to come in and, and sew threads sometime oh, yeah. and pick. You know, it, yeah. It's insane. The, Makeup artist. Yeah, there's, I mean, every, everything. It's it's wild. And his, his whole thing throughout the whole book that I think was so good is like, we've got to make sure everybody's making the same movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's your vision. You're the director, and that's pretty much what your job is to take all of these things of art, all these different individual artists, and make sure that they're all trying to make the same movie, which right. should be your vision. Yeah, and that's, that's why you that's say, so right. and like I'll I'll say that sometimes to like my 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 band or my manager, like when we're talking about like the goals for the next six months. It's like, let's get on the same page. Let's make sure we're making the same movie. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's yeah. like, we're not making movies, but like, it's, it's such a, like a Brene Brown also says like, uh, paint, paint finished for me. When someone asks you to do something, it's like, could you paint finished for me? Like, what do you want this to look like when it's done? Mm-hmm. You know? And mm. it's like, Oh, that's cause like, I mean, so much stuff gets just lost in the translation of trying to be like, Oh, I would have done it this way or, you know, totally. um, yeah, that's yeah. a Sydney Lumet making movies. That really I like that. I'll book. have to pick that up. Yeah, I need to pick it up again and watch. like because I, I keep telling myself like I'm gonna start like making movies again someday because yeah. it, it's something I'm passionate about. But I have maybe uh, similar to your experience with that book. I have a completely weathered and dog-eared um, book about Cassavetes called Cassavetes. Oh, yeah. Um, pragmatism in the movies, I think it's called, mm-hmm. uh, written by Jay Carney, and it's just about his process in the movies and the way he made films, kind of backed up by quotes of his and stories and, and anecdotal. 
and yeah, that that book changed my life. Like just really? and, and then watching his movies. I don't know if you're familiar with John Cassavetes, but like, yeah, my brother's loves him, and he's just been showing me him for. He's a just while now. he's my guy. Like I when I when I understand like the line and like what other people can make, he's always the other guy. For sure, mm-hmm. I've just never seen any other movies like the ones he makes. Oh, cool! And not because they're weird or abstract. I mean, I love David Lynch. I love all the. I love what I love every type yeah, of Charlie movie. Co- you brought up Kaufman earlier. Yeah, yeah, I love, and those are obviously completely opposite. But there's something about John's movies that are just different and uncomfortable and strange and beautiful and like, and just kind of filled with life that I've never seen before. And so reading someone again who would be, I guess he's more of a scholar on him break it down in his own through his artistic lens uh-huh. just like opened me up to what film could be yeah and like why i was resp- it like put words to what i was responding just in a visceral way uh-huh to my to my reaction to the movies so That's that cool. is my recommendation as well i would w- tell me what that's called again one more time it's called uh so it's a book by ray carney and it's john cassavetti pragmatism and the movies. There's another word as well. Pragmatism. I'll look it up. You can't. You can't. You, I mean, there's only a few like really good books um, uh, written about John. Pragmatism. Now, I'm, now I want to find out. Hold on. Yeah, I'll let you look it up. John Cassavetes. Uh, Ray Carney. I guess I paid attention to more of the inside than the actual cover. Um, you, we gotta wrap up here soon. Yeah, soonish. It is called the films of John Cassavetes: Pragmatism, Modernism, and the Movies. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I mean, like, I I started highlighting things that were like you know uh, standing out to me. And I looked at the book; like, it, it's entire. Like, there's almost more highlighted than not. Than not. <laughs> But I really do appreciate it because it helps me like refocus. Like, yeah. oh, what did I find interesting about that? You know, moment or what? How he describes the situation. Um, so yeah, watch his movies first, though. You know, the book is great, but it, you you you'll be kind of lo- you won't understand it unless you've seen the movies. That was kind of what I when I discovered Sidney Lumet. Uh, I had seen a bunch of his movies but i read that book and didn't realize who he was like we just watched the wiz the other day the like black wizard of oz yeah he directed that it's crazy yeah it's just like he just did so he had such a long career and he was in television before he did movies so it's like it's pretty impressive and i I was actually like a few months removed from reading that book when he died i remember it being like oh shit wasn't his last movie like some courtroom drama with vin diesel what because like the the pacifier is that what i'm, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding that's i um, don't know i i i am not as familiar with Sidney lumet as i should be well he made network i discovered yeah, network in college around the time i read that and like you know and then i was reading that and was like oh so then i watched like murder on the orient express and like dog day afternoon and 12 angry okay, men yeah, yeah, and yeah, okay, yes, yes. like he's made uh what what else he had oh the the devil before the devil knows you're dead that was one of his last films oh phil hoffman yeah yeah okay yeah so i've seen his movies yeah he's he's great so good and it's like and what i love about it too in that book is he talks about like 
he's like, I've made some real bad movies too. Like he'll he'll be like, this movie was everybody put forth their best effort and whatnot, and I I take the blame. It turned out bad because I. I didn't make sure everyone was making the same movie or something. Like he'll, yeah. it's really good. He'll be like, "Yeah, I've had some flops and I've had some like huge successes." You know, well, see, and it's... that's what I like about directors like that, as opposed, not even as opposed, but just in difference with like someone like Cassavetes or like David Lynch, who I really love, is that you know they've only made a handful of movies, like mm-hmm. count them on two hands, and they're all kind of in a similar ish vein uh-huh and but then you meet guys like Sidney Lumet who makes like The Wiz and then Network then Dog Day Afternoon and then you know Devil Knows Death like they're all over the place yeah and that's great because they're, they're just a practitioner they're, they're a worker yeah it's it's really interesting to hear someone like that because around the same time in the same book same class I also read a David Mamet um book about mm-hmm. filmmaking mm-hmm. and like love him as a writer did not like his approach to filmmaking at all yeah, and his approach to acting, I think, I don't know his approach to filmmaking, but his approach to acting is so different than what I have trained in and what I find. It seemed uh, to me at the time as just so utilitarian, oh, yeah. so like, uh, I remember saying to my, my professor at the time, who was like the head of the film department, being like, this is like the Ayn Rand of like fucking filmmaking. Totally. Like, I don't, it's like, I get it, but like, the where's the fucking passion where's yeah, the you know what i mean bloodless. it like really drove like yeah. 20 year old 21 year old me just up a wall because i was yeah. just like such a passionate little shit that like yeah, it yeah, was yeah. just like fuck that you know totally. and he's it's david Mamet. like he's he's obviously like like way more important to than me in so you know i mean you know what i mean like he's like a very well regarded actor and writer and director and I was just like, yeah, I don't, not for me. <laughs> yeah, because the way his thing with acting, again, to completely simplify it, so yeah. all you Atlantic theater students, uh, calm down. But <laughs> he, um, it's all, it's, it's all, it's, it's in the words. It's all right there. It's in the word. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. a writer is going to yeah, teach that. Exactly. So like, it's in the words, you know, because like he abhors like sense memory or any kind of method acting where you know the 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 idea is to think about something from your own life, reflect on your own experiences in order to fulfill whatever's happening with this character. And to him, from my understanding, is it's just all, that's all superfluous and you're getting in your own head and out of your way. Just say the fucking lines. It's mm-hmm. very like, say the lines. I, the, the writing is good. If the writing is good, the story comes out of the lines. You don't need to yeah. bother all that other horse shit kind of deal. That's my understanding of uh, at least his uh, approach to acting training. So yeah. I'm not surprised his filmmaking. The, the filmmaking, similar. I remember it was we read maybe a paper from him or something like it was like called Get to the Doorknob or something like that. It was just like essentially like why do you need so many short shots to show someone getting through a door? Like you know what I mean? It was just like I'm sure there's some validity to some of the stuff. Oh, and I think yeah, sorry. just like just like with anything I take from a, so many different things. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's actually a lot of reading something from Mammoth that I would be like, yeah, I think that's interesting. But just like anything I find in life to completely wholesale, take whatever dogma or whatever kind of training or idea from somebody and say, that's the only way to do it Mm -hmm. is inherently bullshit. Yeah. Well, and I think that was, um, what was really funny is Kevin, the, the, the professor of that class where I read these two books. I think we did Mamet first and, or Mamet. I don't know how people say, I say Mamet, but I think some people say Mamet. Yeah. But, uh, um, I think we did him first and he saw me getting all like worked up over it. And he's kind of laughing. Cause he's like, okay, now you're going to read Sidney Lumet. And like, yeah. And it, it's like two ends of the spectrum in some ways. And I think like, 
Well, obviously, there's important, like, really good things from each of them. But right. what really spoke to me... And when you're 21, it's like everything's so fucking about principle and about just, like, I don't know, passion and... Uh, fuck, what's the... I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I know what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, 20, it's like, oh, just like uncompromising, you know? And like, I don't think, I mean, there's definitely like compromises is, is, is an important skill. I, I'd say 21 totally. year old me would say, fuck you to that. Right. But like, I think as you get older, you kind of realize it's like, we're kind of all in this together just because right. you think you're the smartest person in the room. Probably a good sign that you're not right. You know? For sure. So, um, we are kind of, it's, it's, the sun's kind of set and this was good timing. This is fun, man. Thank you. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I want to, you have any, um, trying to think of like, a. you have any, anything you've learned about acting in the past few years that you, or any, any, any final wisdom you'd like to impart us with? expect anything i don't know man like it's uh, nothing is ever uh time's a flat circle man (laughs) yeah no it's just 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 keep doing it you gotta just keep doing it and uh don't give in to bitterness Mm -hmm. i love that i think that that was actually a really important thing for me to hear today so even if the people listening have all tuned out by now i needed to hear that yeah well good so thanks a lot, David. It's Thank been you. great. Man, we got to sit down more often and yes. talk, not just for the purpose of my podcast. But yes. This is great. Um, you're not online at all, really? Like social media? No. Yeah, you don't really do anything like that. No. Uh, anything you have. You, you can catch me on IMDb Pro. <laughs> yeah. IMDb Pro. IMDb, I guess, David Holmes. for all the people that aren't on the Pro. I am not on the Pro. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, just because I'm not on social doesn't mean i'm not thinking about each and every one of you yeah he's he has a list of all of you I and don't i'm know. on high fidelity watch the show it's fun high even fidelity who they canceled it's on hulu and it's fun people yeah. like it totally cheers well, this has been great till next time safe travels till next time we'll see you.